0: You know, Danny um, chose a very uh, poignant theme this semester for our chapels, and that, that was a theme of the gospel, uh, what it is and what it's not. And uh, we've kind of hit, on occasion, different aspects of that, what the gospel is, what the gospel is not. And so today, what I want to do, if I can get this to work properly, is I want to talk about the relationality of the gospel. There we go. The relationality. I'm going to use this. Is that good? All right. And uh, this is kind of something that we often don't think about when we think about the gospel. We tend to think about the gospel in terms of um, truths, uh, propositions. But I want to talk about a little different angle. And we're looking at the same diamond. I want you to imagine the Hope Diamond in the, in the, the, the museum in Washington, DC. And, and I want you to look at it from a different angle. I want you to look at a new facet of uh, uh, brilliance that comes from that. So you might have heard this quote, very familiar quote. Um, uh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a what relationship, right? You've heard that. Now, obviously, in the academic sense, Christianity is is a religion. If you're going to study world religions, you're going to study Christianity as one of those world religions. But in the sense that we're talking about today... We want to emphasize that truth, because I think oftentimes we've said that. You've probably shared that with people. Maybe in, in sharing the gospel, you have told somebody, hey, it's not a religion. It's not an issue of, of religious exercise or religious merit. It's, it's, it's an issue of relationship with God. But what I'd like to suggest today is that even though we believe that from an intellectual and mental standpoint, we often don't present the gospel or believe the gospel that is relational. We say it's a relationship, but we actually present something that seems less than a relationship. And so that's where I want to go this, this, uh, this morning in, in our time together. Too often the way we define the gospel and the way we communicate the gospel suggests that we don't really believe the gospel is a relational message. And so I want us to see some of this, okay? So it's common to use this passage to define the gospel, and Deontay did this several weeks ago for us. He he went through this passage and he did a fabulous job at kind of outlining, and I hope you put your seatbelts on because there's going to be a lot of scripture up there. But he talked about the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. He said, Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, there's the word gospel, which you by which you are saved. And then he gave the, the various points of the gospel. I delivered to you a first and importance and that first order of business. Uh, what I received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And so if we're looking at just the facts of the gospel, we find that 1 Corinthians 15 lays it out clearly for us. But oftentimes we, we stay there and we just say, well, that's the gospel. It's these facts, it's these truths, and it's nothing else. And I think we often fail and maybe come short of defining the gospel more relationally. And I think there's a lot of evidence in scripture to show that we should. And so that's where I want to go today. Um, just looking at some of the language that Paul uses in the pastoral epistles and in the prison epistles, we see this language of relationality as he talks about our state before we were saved and then what happens after we were saved. Even in this text here in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom to, among them, we too all formerly lived and Lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Now, that's a pretty dim uh, passage for us. This is your state before Christ. But I want you to know the the word there, children of wrath. There is family language being used, even in discussing our pre salvation condition. And then, as Paul talks about what happens to us after we get saved, I think I'm going to read off my notes because I'm having a little trouble with that. That's what happens when you get to be 50. It's rough, but God being rich in mercy, this is such, I love that word, but there's the transition point, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. You see, we're with him and he made us. And why did he make us alive? How did he, how did he bring life to us? Because of the great love with which he had for us. And he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, all those prepositions are important. We're in Christ. It's toward us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Well, you know, people give gifts to someone who means something to them. Uh, Gifts are given in the context of relationship, and God has given us the gift of salvation as an overflow of his great love for us. And sometimes we lose this. I I know you know it intellectually, and I know that you understand the key points of the gospel. You've been taught well in your classes, survey of doctrine, and other classes dealing with this, this issue of salvation. I'm just trying to get you a sense of the flavor here. And then here Paul goes on to say, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ. This is in chapter 2. Excluded from the commonwealth. Strangers to the covenant of promise. Even in that language, there's the idea of relationship. You're separated. You're excluded. You ever been in a a group setting where there were kind of cliques, you know, and you weren't in the right clique, and you were kind of excluded? Strangers. That's a relational word. Having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... In Christ, a term that's used, I think, like 67 times in the New Testament. You who were formerly far off have been brought near. That's what relationship's about, is being distant and then being brought near to somebody. Being in close relationship with them, and sometimes in close proximity to them. Here's another passage in Galatians. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive. Now, this is a great Uh, uh, idea. Adoption. Adoption as sons. Adoption as daughters. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel. We who were orphaned because of our sin and waywardness, God adopts us in his family. He brings us in. He makes us his own. We have all the privileges of being in his family. Do you see the relationality of that? And God has sent forth, because you are sons, because you are daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Abba, daddy, father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Do you see the relational nature, the relational language that's in here? As Paul's talking about who we were before and then what our new status is in Christ, it's all relational nature. It's not just facts. Here are the facts. Because if we just use 1 Corinthians 15 alone as the only definition of the gospel, I think we're getting a truncated gospel. Here's a passage in Romans chapter 8. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For if you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption to which cried, Abba, Father. I think I already shared that one. So here's the idea I want to bring forth. Okay, The gospel, if I could just maybe Put a little bit of a, a different kind of spin on the definition of the gospel. The gospel is a set of facts describing what God has done to win and restore those he loves into relationship with himself. Okay. Uh, I could probably refine that a little bit better, but that's where I'm at. And here's what I want to say. Oftentimes, we focus on the facts of the gospel. So when we go share the gospel, so here are the facts. You're a sinner. God is holy. You're separated. Christ is the substitute, the one, the sin bearer for you. He stood in your place. All the facts. And by the way, those facts are important. I'm not diminishing the importance of those facts. But we miss the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is God is in the business of restoring people that have been alienated from him to himself and to bring them into rich relationship with himself. That's at the heart of the gospel. And so we get very clinical sometimes in our presentation and in our definitions. This is the gospel. These are the facts. But we miss the heart of God. We miss that, that component that is so important. So why should we see the gospel as relational? <clears throat> well, here's the first reason. Oops. Go back. Are you doing something? Nope. First of all, God is a relational being. In himself. God is a relational being in himself. Now, you probably have covered in some measure in a survey of doctrine, the Trinity, right? Um, and the Trinity is kind of, I think in Christendom, the Trinity is kind of like our appendix. You know, we know it's there, but we don't really know why. And we don't know much about it. But I, wanna, I want you to know something, that in scripture, this concept of God being one, but three, God three in one, and the nature of the Trinity, that God has always been a Father, always. And Jesus has always been a Son. And the Son has always been loving the Father, and the Father has always been loving the Son, and the Spirit of God is the one who mediates that love between Father and Son. And that has been happening for all eternity. And God creates human beings in His image. And then the fall happens, and we are separated from God. But God desires to draw us back into that tri-unity of love that has been present from eternity past. And that is is beautiful. That is beautiful. God is a relational being in his nature. Um, We see this uh, really um, prominently in, um, maybe I need to go like that. There we go. We see this in John 17, in in Jesus' high priestly prayer. I want you to see all the... If you could draw arrows back and forth between the Father, the Son, um, the disciples, back to the Son, back to the Father, you'd see all these arrows going over the place. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. God is a relational being. He's relational in and of himself. That is the essence of the Trinity. That is the essence of Trinitarian love. There's a tri-unity of love that has been present from the very beginning. Going on in that very same passage, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so they may see my glory which you have given me. Now listen to this. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Who's saying that? Jesus. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that your love, so that the love which you love me, may be in them and I in them. I, I, we could go so many different directions with this, and it's such a rich passage, that high priestly prayer. But I want you to see the relationality involved in that. Of course, familiar passage in 1 John. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, this is not a mathematical equation that God equals love and love equals God. This is saying the very essence of God is love. And what is love? Love is only, can, only can be expressed in the context of relationship. He's a relational God by his very being, his very essence. And love always acts. And so the act of love, the great act of God's love, is that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So God was loving us, even in a state of alienation, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then going on in 1 John chapter 4, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, for God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then we love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. See, the very nature of human relationships between each other is founded in the nature of God's relationship with himself as a triunity of love. We love because he first loved us. So these are just some some, uh, some ideas. God is a relational being in himself. And as you get into a study of theology, you can delve into Trinitarian theology a little bit more and come to see that. Here's the second. We share in divine community. We share in this divine community. First of all, we've been made in the image of God. Now, I know that uh, you've been studying this. I've been hearing some of you talk about papers you've written on this subject. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian was here, and he gave an outstanding definition of what it means to be made in the image of God. He said there are three components of that. There's personhood, intellection, volition, um, um Uh, A a will. There's dominion. There's stewardship, the dominion mandate. And that's the essence of the being made in the image of God. And then there's the relational nature. This was the last point he made. The relational nature of of human beings. And that reflects the relational nature of God. God is a relational being. And we have been made in his image. We are able to have relationship, unique relationship with each other and with him. He has made us for himself. And of course, that's uh, found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Let us, notice there's the triunity of love, make man in our image according to our likeness. The plural pronouns are important. Let them rule over the flesh, fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth. There's the dominion mandate. And over the the creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. So notice he created man, but he also created Male and female. You see, he created man to have relationship with with him. So men and women have relationship. He made it to be that way because God is a relational being in and of himself. And we get to share in that divine community. We get to share in that. So we're made in the image of God. But also, secondly, we've been remade in the image of God. Uh, years ago, I had the privilege of doing a study through uh, the epistle to the Ephesian church. Great, great study. And um, I just was going back and reviewing my notes this week, and I remember preaching through Ephesians 1. It took me quite a long time, but, but I remember the outline that kind of unfolded from that text. And I just want to share it with you. I hope it's not too small on the screen. But I wanted to share it with you. In, in Ephesians 1, you have all three members of the Trinity involved in our salvation. You have the predestining, electing work of God the Father chosen, adopted. He has graced us. Remember when Paul said he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And then he goes to enumerate all those blessings. And and the first one is the predestining, electing work of God the Father. The second one is the redeeming, atoning work of God the Son. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He revealed the mystery of his will. He provided us an inheritance. And then lastly, the sealing and guaranteeing work of God the Spirit. You see, all three members of the Trinity are involved in our redemption, are involved in our rebirth. See, we were made in the image of God, and then we were remade in the image of God through faith in Christ. Do you see the relational connection in that? Our salvation reflects God's tri-unity and his relational nature. So God is a relational being in and of himself, Uh, We share in that divine community. And then I want to talk a little bit now about what I call the marital storyline of Scripture. Uh, the wedding language, it is all over the place. And all you've got to do is kind of put on this set of glasses, and you'll begin to see it as you're reading your Bible. And by the way, I want to encourage you to start reading large portions of Scripture. I think your professors, your instructors are asking you to do that. Read large portions of Scripture. Start to pick out some of the language, the marital language. It is all over. How many of you like weddings? You like weddings? We had a wedding this summer. Her daughter got married. Woo, was that an event, right? Not only to plan for, but also to be there for. Um and as I was preparing, I, I had the privilege of officiating for that. Um, it was a great honor to um, give away my daughter and then officiate at the, the um, exchange of vows her and her new husband have made for, with each other. But when we see this from, from Genesis to Revelation, this marital language. So first, uh, where does it start? It starts in Genesis, right? The first wedding, Okay, so God creates man, then he creates woman, then he brings the woman to man, and then he presents Eve to Adam, and he's just overwhelmed, and he said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There you have that leave and cleave paradigm there, but here, God created male and female, and then he created and he, he officiated at the first wedding ceremony in Genesis. And, and and Adam is just absolutely overwhelmed at this. And they are to come together and form a, uni- a unique union, distinct, and share an intimate relationship with one another. And that intimate relationship reflects the relationship that God has within his own being, and now is being reflected in how he Institutes this, this marriage relationship. Let me just go on, share some others. I have quite a few, and I only chose just a handful. Um, here we have in uh, Exodus chapter 6 say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will deliver you from their bondage, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, I want you to listen to the next phrase. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the under the burden of the Egyptians. Now, this language, I will be your God, and you will be my people, is found throughout Scripture. You, you can just trace it. Just do a little search on that. And does that not reflect what happens in marriage? I will be your husband. You will be my wife. When you exchange vows, that's what happens. You, you say, you're mine, and, and I'm yours completely holy, Um, we we are each other's. Do you see the marital language? Even in the story of the Exodus, God is showing us that he is redeeming a people to himself, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. Beautiful language. Sometimes we miss it. We could go through several other places. In the book of Judges, um, you have repeated patterns of what I will call spiritual adultery. Uh, where the people fell into rebellion and then suffered from that rebellion, and then cried out to the Lord, and then God sent to deliver, right? But it, it's this repeated p- pattern of going after the Baals, going after the foreign gods, and, 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 and turning away from their first relationship with a God who said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You have the book of Ruth, which is the story of the kinsman redeemer, a very important concept in the Old Testament, bound up in a, a love story of Of Ruth and Boaz. You have Song of Solomon. The entire book is the beauty and wonder of marriage. And whether you see it uh, as as speaking purely in the sense of of what marriage is or as a picture of Christ and his church, and I think there's probably some elements of both in Song of Solomon, it is is a book about marriage. You have Hosea. What is Hosea? It's a picture of the spiritual harlotry of of Israel, right? Hosea was asked to marry uh, a whore. And, and, to, to, and she goes and she, she leaves and she goes into harlotry. And then Hosea has, is commanded to buy her back and to redeem her. It's, 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 it's a picture. It's a marriage. It's a marital picture. Uh, Jesus' first miracle. Where was it? At Cana. It was at a wedding. That's where he does his first miracle. We could go on and on. Um, in the Psalms, this particular Psalm is unique. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter the king's palace. What is this a picture of? It's a wedding. A wedding's going on here. Do you see that marital, the marital allusions here in Scripture? There's so many of them. We go to Isaiah. Fear not, for you will not... Uh, Be put to shame and do not feel humiliated for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Now listen for your husband, your husband. That's right. Your husband is your maker. Whose name is the Lord of hosts and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected says, your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. There's marital language there. We see that. Then we come into the the uh, prophets, Jeremiah, uh, and we see the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And this idea of the marital theme continues. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. Now, It's interesting, we're talking about covenant language here. And that's at the essence of what binds a man and a woman together. It's a covenant. Uh, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart and I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here it is again. Okay. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Isn't that the essence of marriage is a deep, intimate knowledge of another person? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see this? I'm just trying to paint a picture. This is all over. there. You go in the New Testament. I preached on this text on Sunday at Fellowship Baptist Church. It's about John the Baptist. And uh, he said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know what? John describes himself as, a, as the friend of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is Jesus. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is to point to Jesus and to point to Jesus alone. And you know at a wedding, isn't that what happens? You know, every, the attention shouldn't be taken away from the bride and the groom. Uh, the bridal party shouldn't steal the show. Uh, The the maid or matron of honor or the best man, they're always there to serve the, the, the bride and the groom, not to take the attention away. And that's what John the Baptist is saying, but he's using marital language. And then we come to this section in 1 Corinthians 6 where we have clear instruction about the dangers of immorality. And Paul is warning about this. But I want you to see the language he uses. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says that two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's saying, listen, there's this parallel going on. And when you involve yourself with immoral relationship relationships. You are joining yourself to another person, and, and there's, there's more than just a physical union going on. There's a spiritual union going on. Do you see how Paul's talking? It's, it's all in the context of a marriage understanding, that he's even giving these warnings about falling into immorality. Well, then you come to the end of the Bible, the very end of Scripture. At the beginning of Scripture in Genesis, we have a wedding, and guess what? At the end of Scripture, we have a wedding. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Boy, we look forward to that day when we'll participate in that great marriage supper. But it is a marriage supper where... The bride of Christ, the church, is, re, is united for all eternity with Jesus and will live with him forever. We'll come into his house like a, a bride will come into the house, and we are brought in. We have a supper. We have a celebration together. We have a reception, a grand reception. Do you see from Genesis to Revelation, the marital language? It's all over the place, and it describes God's relationship with his people. But oftentimes when we present the gospel, we don't use any of this language at all. We kind of just well. Here's fact one, fact two, fact three. And this is what you need to do in response. So I want to suggest, maybe a little bit controversial, but I want to suggest how should the relationality of the gospel change our view of God. And there is one particular view of God as 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 God as the glory grabbing, self absorbed one. Now I know there is a lot of great um, material that has been written by pastors and theologians on the glory of God, a very prominent theme in all scripture. I don't want to diminish God's glory in any way, his transcendence, his power. But often we we get this, and I think it is skewed, this idea that God is in the business. Basically what God wants to do is just bring glory to himself all the time. And he is absorbed in doing that. And I think that skews the essence of the gospel We see here the love of power, and we see the gospel defined by individual capacities, which I will call all the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, um, omniscience, all of those big power attributes of God. And there's an emphasis on the independence of God. But in contrast to that, we see the God of Scripture as a glory-giving God. He shares himself with us He is other-centered. He invites us into that tri-unity of love and says, I want you to be part of the love that has been happening for all eternity past. And so instead of the the love of power, we see the power of love. Instead of being defined by individual capacity, we see God defined by relational communion. Instead of the emphasis on God's independence and transcendence, which I'm not denying is, is true of who God is. He is above and beyond his creation, but he's also imminent with his creation. The emphasis is on relationship and God's great and grand desire to bring us into relationship with himself. So I I would say that when we read stuff that talks about God and his business of bringing glory to himself, let's read it with the lens of understanding the relational dimensions of the gospel. He is not a glory grabbing God. He doesn't have any need to do that. He is a God who invites us in. How should the relationality of the gospel change our view of man? Well, we see here um, man is a free moral agent with mind, will, and desires, self-moved, responsible, uh, having capacities, versus a relational being made to enjoy God, a responsive being, having affections, and it's the affections which drive our will. We tend to think it's the mind which drives the will, but, you know, you do some reading in Jonathan Edwards, and you will see this, the affections of the heart are what drive the will. And so we tend to think of man of sin, and man. Um, well, let me let me get to the next one because that kind of will, will deal with that. How should the relationality of the gospel change our view of sin? Well, we tend to see sin as rule breaking. If you just break one of the rules, and you're guilty of all. Forty nine out of fifty, you didn't you didn't make it. You just came short. You you fall short. Sin is missing the mark, trying our best but falling short. It's very performance oriented, and the righteousness is often found in ourselves. But a a, a relational view of the gospel sees that the essence of sin is self-love. Now, the first one to introduce this idea was Augustine. And he said that there's this inward curvature, that sin, the essence of sin is an inward curvature on ourselves. It's self-love. And so the essence of sin is not necessarily disability as it is disaffection. We love the wrong things. We love the wrong things. Instead of loving God and loving him for all that he is, We love other things. We put other things in the place of God. Self-love and hating of God. So really, the situation is far worse than just rule-breaking. It's zero out of 50. You are far worse off than you think. It's affections-oriented instead of performance-oriented. And righteousness found on outside. Oops. Let me get the other half of that going here. I think I missed one sentence. Um. Oh, that next one. I, I wasn't moving ahead. Okay, so let, let me go back just to so um, the relationality of the gospel in view of man, free moral agent, self-moved mover, having capacities, and a relational being made and to enjoy God, responsive, having affections. And then here we go to the next one. I'm noticing I have to do this. Okay, so rule breaking is the essence of sin. Trying our best but falling short, performance-oriented righteousness found in themselves, versus uh, self-love. The, the, the essence of, um, of sin being self-love, turning away, curving in ourself. Luther uh, developed that theme even further. That that's really what sin is about. It's a, it's a problem with the heart. And that is why in the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll change your heart. So how does the relationality of the gospel change our view of salvation? Well, in one view, it's a deal with a distant God. It's merely legal, or we would call it forensic. It's just about justification, if you want to use a little phrase, catchphrase. Now, um, oops, I missed the spelling of justification there. I apologize. It's an S in there. But I'm not diminishing the importance of justification by faith alone. That is a primary emphasis of the essence of the gospel in the New Testament and in Paul's epistles. But we tend to think it's just about justification. To focus on a contract. Now, you've probably met people that see um, marriage in this way. They see relationships. They say, well, you know, um, this person did this in in this marriage. They kind of broke. We had a contract. They broke the contract. Therefore, I'm free from the contract. I can get out of it. What is God's view of marriage? It's covenantal. It's not contractual. So we see uh, salvation as a package of benefits. We see salvation more exclusively as repentance from rebellion. And once again, I want to just have one caveat. I'm not undermining or under-emphasizing that repentance is not an important feature of our response to God. But I, there was a great illustration I heard years ago that in, um, I don't know if they still do this, but in Africa, they used to catch monkeys by hollowing out a, a dried gourd and putting food in it. And so the monkey would come and sense there was food and see food, put his hand in there and grab the food, and then would be stuck, couldn't, couldn't pull out and that's how they catch the monkeys. I don't know what they would do with them. Eat them? I don't know what they do with them. So what what is the idea? How does the monkey free himself, right? He has to release and pull out. And the idea of repentance is letting go of that which we are holding so tightly on to embrace something far better. We often talk about repent, repent, let go. We don't talk about what we're embracing in view of letting go of this, of our idolatry. You see, if we see sin as self-love, we're letting go of that self-orientation. And we're saying, I want to be in relationship with God. And so I I would say that repentance maybe has a little bit of a different flavor than we often have been presented. Grace is seen as a what. It's seen as some enabling force. Okay, But here's a, a different perhaps view, maybe just to help kind of round out our understanding from a relational perspective. Um, Salvation is seen as an invitation to participation. It's heart to heart and life to life, marital in nature. That's the the idea of marriage. The focus is on union. And whenever there is union, there is communion. And that is the the great joy of the Christian life. It's, It's about communion with Christ. I know we have to develop habits, we have to develop disciplines. I've heard that. It's important, it's good to develop disciplines. But let me ask you a question. If I went to Nancy one day and I said, "Well, honey, I'm making you dinner tonight because it's one of my disciplines, it's one of my habits that I'm developing in my life." How would she feel about that? She'd probably say, "Well, do you do it because are you doing it because you're just doing it out of rote duty and obligation or are you doing it because you love me?" Right? Sometimes we even put the disciplines of the Christian life into this category of, of, of non-relationality. See, out of communion, out of union comes communion. Instead of a package of benefits, we get the person of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Paul said in Colossians, right? Repentance from rebellion is really turning from self-love to a new love by the power of the Holy Spirit. And instead of grace being a what, grace is a who. who is, grace. Who is the person of grace? Jesus. It's not just a commodity. It's the person of Christ. Now, there's one slide I didn't add, and I probably should have added, but but perhaps how does this change our view of sanctification? Oh, I did add it. I guess I did. So an inordinate focus on disciplines and duties, the power of self-effort, and along with that, the danger of moralism, versus from a relational perspective, a new focus on desires and affections. The power of the indwelling Christ and the delight of a marital-type relationship. It's a delight. Okay, so back to the first quote. When we say to those that we're trying to win to Christ, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, do you really mean that? Is that how you view Christian life? Is that how you view your relationship with God? Do you understand the bigger picture here? Or do we present it merely as the set of propositional truths, and that's it's no more. It's, it's forensic. It's legal. It's just these truth statements of propositions. So I want to encourage us to define and communicate the gospel relationally, not just propositionally, because when we do it, it becomes a heartwarming and heart-winning message. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had this chance to explore this theme a bit. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that perhaps is not in alignment with your word, your will, I pray that you just strike that from the record. And I just ask that you would give us an overflowing desire to know you deeply, to be in intimate communion with you to live out of our relationship with you, Lord, that our Christian life is not just a series of obligations to perform, but it's, it's a response of our hearts to your great love for us. You have invited us into the triunity of your love. And Father, we pray that we would live that out, we would express that to a lost and dying world, and we ask that through the power of your enabling spirit. Amen.